Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Taj Easton. And I was so afraid. I was so afraid of having to do what I had to do last night. But when I was driving away, I was really okay. And I knew it was because I wasn't alone and this guy was with me, you know? That and more. But first, this is a very special episode this week. You know, we've been thinking of having some other folks host some of the live shows out there in the world. You know, how David Crabb hosts the live shows in LA. We've been wondering if we might actually have risk shows in other places with other hosts. And then I started thinking it might be fun to have guest hosts on the podcast too. Like we might have our dear friends Ray Christian and Dixie De La Tour hosting episodes soon folks we think of as being like in the risk family but first there's this episode one of our newest editors taj easton recorded a couple of stories that blew us all away and i thought why not just have taj host this episode and then when hope brush our other newest audio editor created a brand new song for this episode too i thought oh this is just such a treat to let our two newest editors more or less take the whole spotlight this week so that is what you're in for and i'll check back in at the very end we'll be right back okay then now here's the show Hey y'all, this is Risk. I'm not Kevin Allison, I'm Taj Easton. And you're probably like, what the fuck? Who is this guy? I don't really know. I'm uh, an audio editor at Risk, but other than that, I'm kind of figuring it out, I guess. In a little bit, we'll hear me going through this whole process in real time. This is the Bar Brothers in the background now, and we're calling this week's episode Mercy. Like, oh fuck, have mercy on me and bring Kevin back. Kevin will be back, don't worry about that. This is just a little detour. Anyway, we're gonna be hearing some stories this week about mercy killing animals. And I gotta warn you that this episode features some pretty hairy descriptions of animal mutilation and killing. So if you're worried about how you might be affected by that, you might wanna skip this one. But if you can steal yourself, these stories also feature some pretty thoughtful meditations on empathy and compassion, so I hope you'll stick with us. Pretty soon, we're going to hear from Tara Forget, who recorded this story with us just a few weeks ago. Tara is my sister and is like one of my favorite people on this planet. She runs the community center and youth program in the town where I grew up in rural Northern California, where both of the stories this week take place. But first we're gonna have to suffer through more of me carrying on about 
trying to figure out who the hell I am and what in the hell I'm doing with myself in a story I told on the phone to my friend Adarius Bell back in July. Adarius and I met in college about 17 years ago when we became roommates, and I find Adarius to be such an unbelievably creative and generous person, I can't tell you. He's a musician, artist, director, father, and designer for Jordan Brand in Oregon. You can find Adarius on Instagram at 8 o'clock. That's at A-D-A-C-L-O-C-K. And you can find his new clothing company at Anza Outdoor Goods. That's at A-N-Z-A Outdoor Goods. When I talked to Adarius, I had just gone through a breakup with my longtime girlfriend Julia, and I didn't know if we were going to get back together or not. It was fucking hard. It was really, it was, I was having a hard time, but I was also in a weird sort of manic state of trying to change a lot of things about myself that I wanted to change. So, Here's me calling up Adarius now with the story we call The Open Window. So, ever since this shit happened with Julia, I've been like on a sort of path to try to be more emotionally intelligent and specifically like try to really learn how to empathize with people like for real for real of course of course i think that was a huge focus coming out of that uh out of that moment with you and your lady man so that makes sense exactly How's how's it going well, you know, we're doing no contact for a month. So, I mean, for me, it's going amazing because, like, I'm on some fucking self-improvement kind of shit that is really empowering for me, and it's really inspiring. Basically, it's about vulnerability, and it's about empathy. So, hold on. No contact? Like, y'all not talking? Or are you like, you can fuck, but y'all can't like, talk? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Like, we're not talking or doing the other thing. <laughs> I imagine y'all fucking with, like, black suits on <laughs> so y'all can't see each other. Or, or like, hella glory holes all around the house. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I interpreted that wrong. Excuse me. No, no, no. I've got to be clear. i got to be clear in my communication. This is what I'm talking about. This is what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because for me, man, when I hear no contact, I... That shit sounds louder than being in a relationship, ironically enough. Yo, it is wild. And at first it was horrible, and now it's good because it has given me this, like, period of time where I have a huge hole in my heart, and I'm, like, legit motivated to not do little self-improvement shit, but be like, I'm really trying to change shit for real. Yeah, yeah, the real dedication. Yes. And I'm like legitimate grateful to her too because I wouldn't be capable of this if she didn't suggest taking the time apart. So like in a weird way, she has done an amazing thing for me. I will just say there are probably a lot of chicks in this world that are willing to have sex with you with a black cover. <laughs> she ain't the only one. I love Julia though. Only with the sheet though. You're saying all these other girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're definitely not trying to fuck the ones who want to fuck you with the white sheet on. You got to be 
You gotta be specific. Black sheep only. Right. <laughs> oh my god, I love you, Adarius. Yes. So that's, you've got the backstory here. And so yesterday morning, I woke up in Oakland and it's a long story, but I was staying in this very bootsy spot, like a sublet for one night that was horrifying. And it's a whole other story that involves like a toilet full of old diarrhea and a very, very bad place to sleep. So, like, I tried to sleep there for a couple hours, and I left at 3 in the morning and went to the Emeryville Denny's parking lot, spent, like, two hours in Denny's, and then went and slept in my car for, like, an hour. So, I'm sleeping in the Denny's parking lot. I wake up. It's, like, 7.30, and I'm, I'm going to meet up with Chris and Kevin, but they're not up yet. So, I'm, like, I'm going to go to Claremont and go to the Forney, Forney Bakery. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I get to Forney, it's like 7.50, and there's already a pretty big line forming, right? So I hop in line, and I'm in line for a couple minutes, and then this dude shows up, this Asian dude with the little girl is like four years old, and the little girl is screaming her head off. She's screaming for her mom. She's got snot pouring out on her nose, drool pouring out of her mouth. She's really not having a good time. And Dad is like over it. Dad has got nothing left and he like gets in line behind me and he's on his phone and she doesn't come all the way to the back of the line she stands on the street corner like right on the curb like a half a step back and she's in traffic so I'm kind of worried because she's so close to traffic and dad is like gets in line and he's like stop it stop it come here stop it you're making a scene and she's having none of it she's sobbing her head off and like, I get it. I get that dad has got no more patience and everyone in line is just ignoring it, which I get that too. And like, that's probably what I would usually do. But in alignment with my newfound commitment to try to empathize with people more, I get up close to the little girl who's still sobbing. It's been probably two or three minutes. I get up to her and I go down on my knees in front of her and I get down on her level and I look in her eyes and I say, you're really sad and you miss your mom and you need, you need comfort. And she keeps crying for about three or four seconds and I'm just looking, I'm just locked. We're just locked in eye contact and she stops crying and I sit there with her for a minute. She doesn't go back to her dad so I don't think she's scared of me. I think like, it helped, like maybe it helped for someone to just say like, I see you. And after a couple seconds, I get up and the line's moving along and I follow the line and I look back and dad's still on the phone and she's still standing there, but she's quiet now. And a couple minutes later, dad gets to where she's at and he grabs her hand and they get in line behind me and, and that's it. I get my croissants and uh, I go on my way. Anyway, later that night, I'm done kicking with Kevin and Chris. I'm driving back to Calaveras. I'm thinking about this girl and I get really, really proud of what I did. I get this big, stupid smile, like that's the biggest, stupidest smile I've ever got from thinking about something. And then I get to this spot in the road. I'm like an hour away from my home. 
And it's like one of my favorite spots on the road because the landscape opens up and you've got this big view and there's forests on either side and it's like this moonlit sort of like meadow on either side of the highway. I'm behind a water truck. And as we're going down this big straightaway, I see a, a big majestic buck, a big deer. And it's running across like this field. Before long, I get worried because it's running right towards the road. It runs out right in front of the truck, and the truck hits it. Dude just keeps going. Dude keeps driving. And there's a turnout right there by where he hit it. And I pull over, and I grab my cell phone because it's the only light I got. And I run over to the deer. It's alive, but it's fucked up, man. Its body's all broken. One of its antlers is hanging off. And... And it's moving, it's moving a lot, and it's whimpering. And I shine my light on its face, I get right up next to it, and I'm looking it in the eye. And I'm so sad. I'm so sad for this deer, Dari. Yeah, yeah. But I figure this is not a time for me to be sad, this is a time for me to help this deer get out of here, you know? So I look up the road and the water truck is stopped. It's about 200 yards up the road. He went way up the road, but then he saw me and he stopped. And I don't have anything that I can use to dispatch this deer. So I think this is a big truck. It's like a work truck. Maybe he's got something. So I start sprinting up the road. I'm running as fast as I can towards this truck. It's a long ways and I'm running and... When I get close, I can see he starts to drive forward a little bit. I think he's nervous that I'm coming to attack him or I'm coming to criticize him or something. And he starts driving away and I stop. And then he stops. And then I just keep running. And I think if he's going to drive away, he's going to drive away. But I want to try to get to this guy. I want to see if he can help. So I keep sprinting. And then he gets out of the car I just see his silhouette, but I'm getting closer now, maybe 50 yards away, and I scream to him, do you have a weapon? It strikes me then that it's a very weird thing to say, because we're in Calaveras, so I think this guy's white. But I get closer, and he's a black guy. He's about 5'8", he's a stocky, muscular, strong guy. But he gets it. He says, it's alive, isn't it? And I say, yeah, it's alive. And I get up to him, and he says, I don't have anything. I don't know what I have. But he's got a toolbox on his truck, and we're looking through the toolbox, and we can't find anything. And I look up at him, and I say, have you ever done anything like this before? Have you ever had to kill a deer? And he says, no, I've never done anything like this before. Have you? And I say, no, I haven't. I've lived here my whole life, and I've been scared of this. I've been scared I was going to have to do this. And he said, I'm scared too. And I say, can you do it? And he said, I don't think I can do it. And I say, you want me to do it? And he says, will you? And he's pleading. He looks at me, he's pleading, man. And, And I say, I don't want to, but I think I can do it. And we can't find anything in the toolbox. And I say, what about in the cab? Have you got anything in the cab? And he says, I don't think so. But he, he's looking in the cab and he says, I found a knife. 
and he's got like a shitty little plastic knife with like a three inch blade that like from the dollar store. And he says, do you think this will work? And I said, I don't think so, but I don't know what else to do. So he gives me the knife and I go, I go sprinting off. I'm really fast. And I think he's following me, but I don't know. But I, I turn to him and I say, will you come? Will you help me? And he says, yeah, yeah, I'm coming. So I sprint back all the way to the deer. But when I got there, cars had been going past and another car had hit it. And it was so much worse. It took off one of its legs and there was just, oh, shit. There was just a bone sticking out like from about where its elbow. But it was, it was no less alive. I got my phone and I, I set it up and I prop it up so it's shining right on the deer's head. And I grab its head real good because I know it's not going to be easy. And I take out the knife and I try to cut its throat, but it doesn't work. The knife's too dull. And I try again and again and I try to saw it and I can't do it. And I probably try six times as hard as I can, but it's just fur coming away and it's just exposing the muscle. But it's not going to work. I know it's not going to work. So I try to stab in so that I can I can cut with the blade in its neck. But the knife's so shitty, it, it folds on my fingers and it cuts my hand. And just then the guy says, I found a rock. I found a big rock. And I said, bring it. Bring the rock. Bring the rock. And he runs up with the rock. And it's it's not big enough. It's maybe, it's maybe a six pounds and it's maybe eight inches. And I say, okay. Shine the light on it. Shine the light on the deer's head. And he's got a headlamp on. And he shines it on the deer's head. And I take the rock. And I get on my knees next to the deer. And I lift it as high as I can. And I bring it down as hard as I can on the deer's head. It's the most pain the deer has been in yet. It flails. And it, and it screams. And it screams. So I do it again. And I, I hit it again. And I hit it again, and I hit it again, and again, and again, as hard as I can. And I hit it, I hit it 20 times, and the light's right on the deer's head, so I know this guy's not looking away. And he says, I think you got it, I think you got it. And I stopped, and I didn't get it. It's still alive. So I, I, I hit it again, and again, and again, Dari, and I hit it 30, I hit it 40 times. And finally, finally blood comes spraying out of its nose and out of its mouth. It's not like the movies, bro. I thought 10 times and it's going to break its skull, but that's not what happened. And he said, you got it. It's gone. It's gone. And I, I put the rock down and I got blood and, and viscera dripping off my hands and on my face and on my shirt. And on the shoes you gave me, they're covered in blood. And I look up at him, and the light didn't move the whole time, so I, I knew he was, he was right there with me. And I look at him in the eyes, and I say, this is like a horror movie. And he says, yeah, yeah, it is. It's just like a horror movie. And I look at him, and I say, this is so terrible. And he says, this is so terrible. Mm. And we, we look down at the deer, and it's still moving. It's still, it's still quivering. But I think it's gone now. I think I believe him that it's gone now. And we stay there for a minute, and he's shining the light on the deer, and we're just quiet. And 
after a minute we get up and the deer's still twitching, but we don't know what else to do. And I believe him that it's gone. And we slowly walk across the street to my car and we just stand there together. And we don't say anything because we don't need to. We're like, we're together in that moment, you know? Like we felt, mm. we felt the same shit. I'm, I'm standing there and he, he puts out his fist to do a fist pump. And I, I hold up my hands and look at my hands and he shines his headlamp on him and they're, they're dripping with blood and with gore. And I say, if I do that, you're gonna have blood on your hands too. And he takes his fist away mm. and he says, oh. And then he stops and he puts his fist back out and we fist pump and he walks away. Mm. And I get back in my car. We leave the deer there on the side of the road. And I start driving home. And I'm thinking about it. And I think this is one of the few times in my life that it's unintentional, but I really empathize with this guy, you know? Like, we were together because of what we went through. And I'm thinking back through my life, and I think there's maybe two or three times when I've had an experience like that. When my mom died, my brother found me in the bathroom one day. I was, yeah. I was sobbing, and he came in, and then he started sobbing, and he, he held me, and we collapsed on the ground together. And I thought about that moment. I thought about when my cousin died and it was my brother again. And we were just together, man, in the grief. And I thought, you know, I have been dreading having to kill a deer my whole life because I've heard of it and I know it happens. And I've, I know a lot of people that have hit deers. And I knew that if I hit a deer, I couldn't drive away. And I was so afraid. I was so afraid of having to do what I had to do last night. But when I was driving away, I was really okay. And I knew, I knew it was because I wasn't alone and this guy was with me, you know? Mm. And then not a quarter mile down the road, I passed this roadside stand that's been there just a couple of years. And it's, it's a stand that has all, only flags. All they sell is flags. And they're all Trump flags or flags <laughs> that people that vote for Trump would like. And, and one of them says, kill them all and let God sort them out. And another one says, black eyes matter. Hmm. I don't even know what that means, but I guess it's, it's a condemnation of black lives matter and an endorsement of domestic violence or something. I don't know, but it doesn't seem friendly. I thought about this guy who was driving that same way and who, who saw those flags and I thought about how he was afraid to stop. And when I was running after him and I said, do you have a weapon? I very much doubt that he was comfortable and that he felt safe, but he stopped mm. and he let me run up to him. Neither of us had to stop, but we did. And we were, we were there for each other to do this very difficult thing. And 
I'm so glad he did because I don't know I don't know how well I would have taken it if I didn't have him there with me. You know, it makes me think of like the Green Book, you know, and how mm-hmm. black folks driving through the country even today, they don't know if it's safe to stop. Mm. I'm really glad he stopped. That kind of empathy that helped me get through that, that's what I want in my relationships. Mm. Anytime that I can give that to somebody that needs it or somebody can give it to me when I need it, I think it's the most powerful thing that we can give to each other. Mm. Mm. Oh, shit. You know, I will say this. The biggest thing I got from you, bro, out of that whole story was it actually maybe the, the second to last, like, part of the paragraph, bro, which was you've been through all that shit. You had to level set. Even if you go back to your day, beginning with that little girl, you, you felt it. You saw it. You level set. You then had time to breathe and process then you came back and was on a whole different trajectory with grief and horror. And you realized that you were okay. That is the operating principle of empathy. Yeah. Is knowing that regardless of how your stance is, what you feel, what you see, what you look like, that in your interaction, in your grief, in your disposition in your ability to be connecting at the end of the day bro it's gonna be all right yeah and that's a huge part of like how you should or not even should but bro how anybody we all should operate and i think you know i always think about fear right you know you probably were really fucking scared and had a lot of fear in that fucking moment but you know they always say like Fear is the opposite of confidence. Fear is the opposite of hope. And fear is the opposite of, you know, like all these things. Empathy. is The reason fear is like that is because it's unknown, bro. But if you know, you're never scared. Even when you have fear, you ain't scared, bro. So, man, like kudos to you for really living in that shit, especially with a, a nigga who could have drove off. Nigga. If that was me, my nigga, I would have been like, this nigga asked if I got a weapon, my nigga. I, okay, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. I'm going <laughs> to I would have never came back. Nigga, you would have been with that deer. You, the deer solo, my nigga. I would have been like, but, you know, a part of that was that dude understood that it will be okay. And y'all met each other where y'all at, man. Even him not doing anything, holding a headlamp, and being black in a really scared moment. Yeah. That was a lot that he offered to you. And it may not have felt like a lot at the time, but like in his eyes, he's like, look, for me to just even be here in this bumfuck place, standing here, that's exactly why you got that hand dap at the end. It's exactly where he was at in that moment, bro. Like, I can't do this, but I trust myself. I trust people. And I trust that the outcome of this is going to lead to, you know, what I needed right now. So it's crazy how these situations, man, like, it's that's a wild one, bro. God damn. It's crazy how these situations can really mirror what we're going through in a whole different facet of life, man. Hey, T, you remember when 
I don't know where we were going. We were driving somewhere and we were in the car and I think I might have even broke up. I don't know what happened. It's either like some real family shit or a breakup or something, either with my mom. My mom was going through some shit at the time. But me and you were driving, bro. And I just broke down crying. I just like, I was crying in the car. I was going through it, bro. And you were driving, actually. I think you were driving me back home to the Bay, maybe from Davis. I don't remember where, where we were, but I just remember breaking down crying and being like, man, whatever it was, this is fucked up. I was really broken. And I looked over at you. And you hadn't said anything the whole time, like zero. Like you hadn't said anything like, oh, this is bad or nothing. You, 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 you said nothing. You just let hot shit play. You let hot shit play through my breakdown. Didn't turn the music down. We just kept driving. And then you looked over at me. And I was like, is this nigga about to say something? I was like, nah, you grabbed a cup in your car and just spit. All this black spit came out of your mouth. <laughs> what the f- and I didn't know you were chewing at the time. I just thought you were spitting blood out. I was like, what the fuck? Does he, what the fuck is going on? Does he even know what I'm going through? This nigga is bleeding out of the mouth as I'm breaking down. Like, what situation is worse? I have no idea. You just spit and then you just like looked up and just kept driving. And, and me and you hadn't known each other that long. It was early on. You know, we were in our late teens, early 20s. Yeah. And I, I looked at you and I was like, first thing I thought, bro, I've never told you this. First thing I thought was, well, maybe this is how this nigga talk about it. I didn't know. You know, fast forward that we're talking about this, bro. Like, your ability to understand and process doesn't mean even what people think your shedding has to look like. Yeah. My God, because I got it. I got it from you spitting some tobacco. You th- that worked for you? That nonverbal, empathic communication worked? Bro, I, I got it. You were there. You looked me dead in the eye. And you just spit tobacco in the cup. And that was, it was like, this This moment is like, it's so fucked up, Dari. I don't want to tell you this. It's not my place. You didn't necessarily have the words. But the gesture alone brought me back, bro. Cause it was like, I hear you. I see you. This is whack. And I, and it also was this point of like, such a nice guy that just like meant all his whole fucking mouth up, tear up his throat just for me to get this fucking sentence off. I love this dude. So I, you know, I really, I really thought that's what I saw it as. I was like, this nigga really wanted me to finish this conversation before he just disrespected me with all this mud spit. <laughs> Got some real empathetic shit, bro. A black nigga who you met for like nine months, bro, in your passenger, breaking down crying. And you were there to hear it, bro. So, I'm, man. No. Society even tells us the way we have to shed is to cry, to be vulnerable, to be all these things. We are all and we are nothing, bro. We are everything and we are nothing. We can be. That when we want to be that, we can be something different when we need to be something different, bro. And for me, again, since I look at people differently and I have a way higher aperture for when it comes to empathy, I find those gestures to be just as comforting than someone needing to be with me to talk about some shit. You're my brother, man. Yeah, man, you already know, T. Right before this call, I was like, 
I was getting I was getting emotional getting ready to have this call to tell this story again. I was getting real sad. And this call has had the same effect. We're like, I'm good now. Mm. And that's because of you. Mm. It's because of you. It's because of you, man. You gotta give yourself more credit. It's because of you. Because mm. you, you really you really seeking that shit, bro. It, that, mm. that shit goes to you, bro. Mm. And that's that's where you at. And, and yeah, man, again, you raw and, and, and that's where it, it feels like other people. Bro, all, all praise and credit goes to you on this one, bro. Like you're opening yourself up. Thank you, Dari. Oh, thank you. You you know, you my brother from another, bro. We we deep in this shit. Yeah. I mean that's shout out to the shout out to the universe for making that one happen. I'm I'm very grateful to have you in my life, man. I'm here, bro. You already know. Thank you so much. Man, it's all good, T. I love you, bro. I love you, brother. Much love, Paula. Much love. opens from heart to heart and there are ways of closing it completely not a needle's eye of access open or shut both ways are sometimes appropriate the deepest ignorance is not to know about this window when When houses houses live side by side side with windows windows open, open that's the embrace we want we want. A place where great souls can stop over and rest.
Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a Great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We're back. So you always hear grandmothers telling these stories of wringing chickens' necks. Like, you just go out, you pick up a chicken, you twist its neck, all done, no big deal, put it in a pot. Well, from my experience, it is not as easy as those stories make it sound. So one hot summer day, I'm walking down to do my chores on our little farm, on our family property. So our house is up on top of the hill under a bunch of black oak trees and the barnyard is at the base of the hill. So every morning I leave my house and I walk down this old dirt road down to our little farm to do the chores and take care of the animals. So this morning, it's a hot summer morning and as I walk down the hill, I'm kicking up the dry red dust of the dirt on that road. There's a hot summer breeze blowing through the oak trees. And as I walk down the hill, my mind's more on the day ahead of me than it is on the chores that I do every morning. Thinking about work and what I have to do and errands I have to run and what's on my plate for that day. As I walk down the hill, I get down into our barnyard and when you get down there on a summer morning, it's hotter on that flat barnyard than it is anywhere else on the property. So I'm just moving through my chores, trying to get them done. I take the hose and I fill up all the water buckets and I feed the pigs and I feed the goats. But then as I walk over to feed the chickens, I see that there's a hen dead in the coop. She's laying out her head stretched out on the ground and the back of her head is gory. It's bloody and it's red and the feathers are gone and I can't tell if the chunks are like skin or brains coming out of the back of her skull. So this is a thing that chickens do. Sometimes they'll just single out a hen and start picking on her and pecking her. 
sometimes to the point of killing each other. I don't really know why they do it, but that's where they get the expression pecking order. One hen ends up at the bottom of the pecking order, and sometimes they just pick on her until they kill her. So I think, oh shit, I don't have time for this this morning. But that's farm life, these things happen. So I climb in the chicken coop to pull out this hen. And when I get there, I realize she's not actually dead. She's just almost dead. So with a big sigh, I think, all right, I can do this. It's part of farm life. Things like this happen. I just gotta put her out of her misery. So I pick her up and take her back over to the other side of the barnyard into this old feed room that our dad built when I was a little girl. And in there, it's darker and cooler and out of the hot morning summer sun. So I take her in there and I'm holding her in my arms. I've got her tucked under one arm and her head's just laying kind of limp against her body. Her eyes are closed and her neck's kind of rolling around. And so I'm sad for her, but I think, all right, Tara, you just can do this. This is farm life. Just gonna wring her neck, just like the grandmas do. And then I'll put her out of her misery and it'll be done. So I've got her body under one arm and I take her limp, bloody head and my other arm, and it's kind of cringy. But I just take a deep breath and twist, and I feel that crunch in my hand of this chicken's neck. But she isn't dead, and the chicken fucking jumps up and squats! And so now I think, okay, well, I've broken her neck, and her head's all torn up, and it didn't work. So I just give it another go and grab onto her neck again, and this time I pull and twist and hear the crunch of her neck. And then she's quiet. She goes limp. And it just makes me sick to my stomach. But this is farm life. This is what you do. And now I've got this dead chicken under my arm. I take a minute to catch my breath and try to forget that crunchy feeling of her neck in my hands. So I put her down in the dark, cool feed room and go to get a shovel to dig the chicken a grave. So I've got this old square tip splintery shovel that we keep down in the barnyard and I go and I find a spot and I start digging the chicken a grave. The dirt is dry and rock hard. By the end of it I'm dripping sweat. So I end up digging kind of a shallow grave for this chicken but it's the best I can do. I've got to go to work, got other things to do. So I go and get the chicken and I'm holding her gently in my hands and I carry her over and lay her in this shallow, dusty grave. And I take a minute and, you know, think, I'm sorry, chicken, I hope you're peaceful now. Lay her in her grave and then put a scoop of dirt 
on top of her and start to bury her. And then I put another scoop of dirt on her and think, all right, it's done. I did it. And then the chicken jumps up out of the grave, screaming and squawking with her bloody head. And she's not fucking dead. And I think she would have been fine. But I'm so far into this mercy killing that I pull the shovel up over my head and bring it down on her neck. And I'm yelling, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Die, chicken. You you have to die. And I bring the shovel down again and again. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Die already. Ten times I hit this chicken until this rusty old dull shovel finally cuts off the chicken's head and she falls down, finally fucking dead, in her shallow grave. So I bury her and cover her with the red dry dirt and then I walk back up the hill. But next time, I'm letting nature take its course. Because those chickens are a hell of a lot tougher than you realize. All the meat that we eat, we either raise or my husband hunts in the woods. It's important to us because we feel that if you're going to eat meat, you need to understand the cost and that it means taking the life of an animal. And we don't want to turn away from that. I walk this fine line between doing it compassionately and trying to be practical about it. And most of the time I can do it and it's not too hard to take care of them and remember why we're doing it and to feel good about that. But other times, like when you you go down and you feed the animals and you know it's their last day and you're feeding them their last meal, sometimes you just have to look at it and you can't turn away. And you look it in the eye. And that's hard. Sometimes it's hard. But then you walk back up the hill and you go back to life. Can hold my body down There ain't no grave Can hold my body down When I hear that trumpet sound I'm gonna rise right out of the ground Ain't no grave Can hold my body down 
Well, look way down the river And what do you think I see? I see a band of angels And they're coming after me Ain't no grave can hold my body down There ain't no grave can hold my body down Well, look down yonder, Gabriel Put your feet on the land and see But Gabriel, don't you blow your trumpet Till you hear from me There ain't no grave can hold my body down There ain't no grave can hold my body down There ain't no grave can hold my body down is just about it for this week's episode of Risk, folks. This is Ferris and Jason Romero in the background now, and we just heard a song from Johnny Cash. Prior to that, we heard from Tara Forget, my sister. I am so, so pleased that we got to do this episode together. You know, I grew up on the property where my sister lives now, and I spent many, many mornings in just the way that she described in her story. Walking down the hill, feeding the cows, the goats, horses, and other animals we raised, and killing chickens and shit. And I love the way that she ended her story, because that sense of difficulty that she describes in growing close to the animals that we were raising to be slaughtered shaped my life in no small way. In fact, it's probably one of the main reasons that I'm a vegetarian. Anyway, I was just really moved by her vulnerability in sharing that story, and the honest way that she expressed this sort of cognitive dissonance that she sometimes grapples with when trying to bring together those opposing motivations she was talking about. So yeah, way to go, sis. Prior to that, we heard an interstitial by our episode editor, Hope Brush, which featured an excerpt from the poem, We Have Opened You, by Rumi the Poet, as well as some beautiful vocals that Hope wrote and performed herself. I was fucking blown away by what Hope did with that. Preceding that, we heard more of my irritating voice in a story I shared with my friend, the inimitable Adarius Bell. Adarius is always there for me when I'm going through some challenging shit, and I'm so grateful to him for that. Thanks for bearing with me, Adarius. We'll be right back. We're back. Okay, enough from me. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Allison, he's the host of this show. What's this other fucking guy doing here? Kevin is the host. He's been the host for a long time. He's a ton of fun. He's so charming. He's always laughing all the time. What's he laughing about? He's just sitting in front of a microphone. How is he always laughing like that? It's so cool. I love Kevin Allison. I bet y'all love Kevin Allison. Some of you maybe don't. But you'd, you'd bear with him, right? Because he's the host, and I'm not the host. So here comes Kevin. I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm fucking done with this. <laughs> Thank you so much, Taj. I just thought it was such a breath of fresh air this week to have you take over the show. And I was just so touched, especially that those two stories were you 
intimately recording stuff with these people who are very close to you. Thanks, Kevin. I mean, I'm just so grateful for this opportunity. I've loved Risk for fucking 10 years or something now. And this is like a dream come true. And I can't believe that you let me do it, really, to be honest. (laughs) No, I thought it was a treat. And I especially love that it was a chance for folks out there to get to know someone behind the scenes, you know, here a little bit better. So thank you so much, Taj, and I can take it from here. I just wanted to remind everyone that now everyone's going back to school and going back to work and all. It's a great time to remember that the Story Studio, which is also our team, we do these custom-tailored corporate workshops or workshops for any kind of small team. We've done workshops for families or, you know, nonprofits or little creative teams. Done workshops for Pfizer and USA Today and NYU, Princeton University, Google, Citibank. So many raves for these workshops. People say that no one teaches quite like we do. We leave you with very practical and memorable tips for how to communicate more persuasively, more emotionally, more humanly. So look us up at thestorystudio.org. And that about wraps things up. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>